Passion with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by James Lapine adapted from Ettore Scola's 1981 film Passione di Amore and the 1869 novel Fasca opened at the Plymouth Theater May 9th, 1994. Set in 19th century Italy, the plot concerns a young soldier and the changes in him brought about by the obsessive love of Fasca, his colonel's ailing cousin, in a story of love, sex, obsession, illness, passion, beauty, power, and manipulation. How could I forget you? Yesterday I walked through the park to the knoll where we met. Afterwards I sat on the bench where we sat for that sultry afternoon. I thought about our room, my little room, where we were happy. We shall be happy again Someday I see us in our room Our little room And I don't feel so alone anymore I close my eyes Imagining that you are there Imagining your fingers touching mine Imagining our room, the bed The secrecy, the world outside Your mouth on mine I hope I didn't startle you. Signora Ricci, I'm Captain Bacchetti. Oh no. My cousin has told me all about you. I came to thank you for the books. I would have sooner. But I've been so ill. Well, now you seem to be feeling more normal. <laughs> normal? I hardly think so. Sickness is normal to me as health is to you. Excuse me. I shouldn't speak of my troubles. I've been going through a period of deep melancholy. With us today are John Doyle, director of more than 200 productions so far during his over 40 year career, including on Broadway, The Color Purple, The Visit, A Catered Affair, and Sondheim's Company and Sweeney Todd. He's the artistic director of New York's classic stage company where he directed Passion in 2013. Multi-Tony, Olivier, and Grammy Award nominee Judy Kuhn, best known for her work on Broadway and Fiddler on the Roof, Fun Home, She Loves Me, Chess, Les Miserables, and Rags, who portrayed Fosca both at the Classic Stage Company and as part of the Stephen Sondheim Celebration production in 2002 at the Kennedy Center. And Kathy Voiko, whose work on Broadway includes appearances in Tuck Everlasting, a Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, Next to Normal, The Pirate Queen, Nine, Oklahoma, and Sondheim's The Frogs. Additionally, she portrayed Clara in the Chicago Shakespeare Theater production of Passion in 2007. Welcome everyone to the round table. I'm so Thank delighted you. to be here with you and to talk about this show. Um, I like to start uh, at the very beginning for each of us, where passion came into our lives, either as an audience member or as uh, it, with a production that we might have been associated with. For me, it was the original Broadway production, and it was uh, distinctive to me because it was the first Sondheim production that I had ever seen on Broadway with the original cast. It took me a while to, to, aside from national tours and things like that. So I did see that original production and came to it with a lot of the knowledge of some of the challenges that they had uh, during previews in getting it uh, to opening night and the sort of response it was getting that was contradictory from the press to the audiences experiencing it. Uh, what about for each of you? When did passion first come into your lives? Uh, Judy, let's start with you. Um, well, I also saw that original production. Um, I guess it must have been not that long after it opened. Um, and I knew nothing about it when I saw it. 
maybe I had read a review. I, I don't really remember. I, I do remember being kind of thrown back by it. Like I didn't, I don't think I got it. I didn't know, I, I, it was not like any other Stephen Sondheim I'd mm -hmm. ever seen. And um, I wasn't, I really wasn't sure what to make of it. I don't think I was ready for it. Mm -hmm. And then years later, um, actually it was right, it was not that long after 9-11 and I wasn't thinking about work at all. Um, I was wondering if we'd ever have a normal life ever again. When I got a call with an offer to play Fosca in the Sondheim celebration. Mm -hmm. And I remember my, I knew that the Sondheim celebration was happening. And of course, everybody wanted to be a part of it in some way. And every, I was thinking about what would I want to play? And um, what, passion was not on my list. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got that offer, I had, my first reaction was, they're offering this to me? And then Fosca? And I, I said, okay, um, just, I just need to look at it. And they sent me the script and the score and I listened to it and I read it and I thought, this is not what I remembered seeing. And that's not to say anything about the original production. It's just wasn't my, I had taken away a different experience of it. And I was blown away by it, the, the beauty of the score and the, in the intricacy of the story. And then I read the novel that it's based on and I thought, okay, there is so much here. I, I can't wait to get to work on it. And that was, uh, mm -hmm. and then of course, there was revisiting it with <laughs> the great John Doyle 10 years later, which was, you know, another incredible. The thing about Fosca is it's like Hamlet. You know, you can just endlessly mm -hmm. explore it and discover new things and find new approaches. And I, I think it's extraordinary piece of writing. I agree. Kathy, when did uh, passion come into your life? Well, curiously, I had just graduated college in 1994 when it opened and I moved to New York wide-eyed and thrilled. And that was one of the first things I saw. And because I had just moved there, everyone who came to visit me also wanted to see it. So I'm, actually amused when you asked me to do this round table, I went back, I saw it four times, <laughs> which was completely by virtue of the fact that, as I said, everyone wanted to see an original Sondheim with the original cast. Mm -hmm. So I really saw it regularly. I saw the same cast every time. There were never any covers on. Everybody was wildly committed to the storytelling. And like Judy said, the first time I saw it, I walked away with one perspective on the show. And the next three times I saw it, every time I saw it, I found different bits that intrigued me or frustrated me or made me feel something else. So I think that it's an interestingly flawed story in that way is that there, you don't leave with sort of a happy, fulfilled feeling, no matter how many times you see it, because there's more to the puzzle that we never really solved. And so seeing it so many times, I had a weird perspective on it. And then a couple of years after I had been working for a while, the lovely and talented Gary Griffin said, hey, I wanna do passion at Chicago Shakespeare, wanna be Clara. And I said, uh, how naked are we talking? <laughs> and Gary said, pretty darn naked. And I said, all right. So, <laughs> uh, so we, I had the privilege of doing that show with uh, Rob Berman and Gary Griffin, and they came at it from an entirely different perspective at Chicago Shakespeare in the black box. So we walked through the audience and got to explore it in a very intimate way because we were three feet away from our audience and walking through them and around them and with them. So again, I think that it's an interesting piece because you never really solve the puzzle. Heaven's a flower that offers nectar at the top, delicious nectar on the top, and bitter poison underneath, the butterfly that stays too long and drinks too deep is doomed to die. 
I felt very lucky to see that production uh, at Chicago Shakes. There, it, it was a bit of a revelation for me. Your your opening scene, notwithstanding, but I mean, uh, the show itself. Uh, it, Pretty it, naked. Well, it showed a lot of what uh, you could do with the show too. Uh, John, how about you? No, I was trying to remember. I think <clears throat> the first time I saw it, in fact, the only time I saw it until I until Judy and I did it together was I saw the London production. I reckon that must have been 1996, somewhere in there. And uh, my memories of it are a bit mixed, really, to be absolutely honest. What do I remember? I remember Michael Ball's bottom. Uh, that's very clear to me. <laughs> he was there. Was that, hmm? that with Maria? Was that with Maria? Maria Friedman, yeah, and Michael Ball. And uh, I remember... <sighs> Like Judy, I'm not sure that I completely got it at the time. Uh, I mean, Maria Friedman's a friend of mine, so I went along to be, you know, I wanted to be there. Um, those soldiers really annoyed me. Uh, and I just thought, why did we write this for three people? What are these people coming on doing? They're annoying. And I, but, you know, I was distracted for two reasons. One, I think it was, I think it was a very, very early date, if not perhaps first theater date with my present husband, so that's a long time ago. Um, not the ideal thing to go to on your first date. <laughs> and that's one memory. And then I remember that in the middle of it all, uh, half like during the performance, there was an electricity blackout. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a very full house anyway. Surprise, surprise. And then uh, we sat in the dark for an hour before the lights came back up. Well, it's a London audience, you know, they went through the war, so they were used to the blackout. So we just sat there in complete darkness. Nobody said anything. And then eventually the lights came back up and they finished the show. It was very, very bizarre. But then what, what, what happened to me next with the show was that I'd been on a another date, another theater date with Stephen Sondheim. And uh, he'd, we'd been, uh, I'd done Sweeney, Todd, and I think Company as well on Broadway by that time. And he said something to me about, oh, you don't see any off-Broadway stuff. You know, you only see things uptown. I'd like to take you to the theater. So we had a very nice evening. He took me to see a production of The Three Sisters at uh, Classic Stage. And I enjoyed the production. I very much enjoyed my evening with Steve. But I remember thinking, oh, God, this is the most amazing space. It reminds me of the Donmar Warehouse or the Almeida. I'd like to do a play here. And I never, ever ask anybody for a job. But I did say to my agent, would you just get in touch with those people and see if they would meet me? And the my previous artistic director did meet me and said, oh, would you like to come and do something? I said, I'd love to come and do a play. He said, no, could you come and do a musical? I thought, oh God, only, uh, people only ever ask me to do musicals. Please let me do a Shakespeare. So I did, so I still wanted to work in the space. And he of course said, would I think about doing a Sondheim? And uh, I thought, what is the one piece of Sondheim? Well, there are many pieces of Sondheim that you could deem classical, but you know, what's one with long frocks and in from another time and, you know, great passions and then came passion. And so that's why I ended up doing it there, really. And, and I think my, one of my aims was to figure out how to make the soldiers likable to myself, which I think I ended up managing to do because I never took them off stage, really. But um, uh, yes, and that was the first of a number of musicals there. But it, it sits interestingly in a canon of work, as you know, that I've done of Steve's. Mm -hmm. and, and sorry, before I hand, you, hand it back to you, I should, would like to say that the person, and I... The person who I'm almost most grateful to, other than Judy, other than God for letting me meet Judy Kuhn, was the fact that I, that, that James Lapine was so generous to me in that it's not, you know, I'd done revivals, quite notorious revivals of Hal Prince's work, but he didn't write the shows. James had done the original production and written the show, and here was this audacious British person doing a kind of notable off-Broadway you know, revival of it. And he was unbelievably generous, which was important to me. Mm -hmm. I, find, I find it interesting that we four 
have a similar story in that the first time we experienced the show was as an audience member and we didn't quite get it. Why do we think that is? What is it about this show that on first viewing, or maybe it was that first production, which is what's so interesting is how a different production can reveal different things. But there's something about this show that people are, and is it because of the, the, uh, the extreme question that it asks you to believe happens that the way that, the, the, the way that Fosca and Giorgio eventually end up? Um, what is it about it? that I, I so many people I talk to have that same thing. And then it grew on them to be their favorite show. I have strong feelings on that. I, Please, that's why if we're I may, <laughs> I feel that I feel that Fosca takes a lot of effort to love as an audience member. And oftentimes we go see a show and we want the star or the protagonist of the show, we want to get behind them right away. And it's not easy with her. So I think that when you're watching the show and you think this is the person whose story I'm following and I'm getting behind, it's, it's very conflicting. It, 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 you, you want to get behind her, but she's a mess. And whether we see that same mess in ourselves or not, it's tricky with her because I want to be rooting for the central character, but she is a tricky piece of work. And I don't know if I want to be friends with her and I don't know if I want to champion her. And so it leaves you confounded, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way. But I think that that seems to be a universal thing with people who see it and they say, God, that's Bosca. <laughs> She's a confounding lady. That's just my two cents. I hear you. I wonder though, I mean, the opera is full of people like opera is True. full of like Bosca. And we deeply care about them, however flawed, right? You yes. know, they're mad and we still care about them. So, and to me, I've always thought of this piece more like an opera than a musical. I mean, I'm not talking about how it's presented, far from it in the way that it's presented. I know that when we did it, Judy, it was very intimate, like the one that you did, Kathy, very almost, if I say undersung, I don't, you know, it was intimately sung. Oh, my question at the heart of it about what do we mean by the word ugly? What does that really mean? To me, it doesn't mean warts on your face. You know, it's got nothing to do with that. It's to do with perception. And I think it's, I think it's just deeply psychologically complex. In the same way that Sweeney Todd is deeply psychologically complex, except Sweeney Todd at least has Little Priest, so you can have a laugh. Exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, this is a musical now, thank God. Whereas with Passion, I think it feels less like a musical than most. Such a, it's so delicate. I mean, here's oh, yeah. a, I, it's, I love Fosca. I, I 
have such empathy for her. And actually one of the first things when I was first gonna do it at the Kennedy Center and I read that novel, I, one of Giorgio's first descriptions of Fosca is that she has beautiful eyes and that he imagines that she once might have been attractive ex except that she's so ill. And then I went on this big journey to figure out, well, what is she ill with? What makes her ill? And that's a whole, that could take an hour. But um, <laughs> I think that it's really, in a way, it's the story, in a way, the protagonist of the story isn't Fosca, it's Giorgio. Right. And it's not about Fosca, it is about Fosca's obsession, but it's about the transformation in Giorgio and how he comes to understand and to love Fosca. And that to me is where the, if you put too much emphasis on what's wrong with Fosca, then you miss that, you know what I mean? Yes. And I think one reason that both the productions I did, but particularly the one that I did with John was so successful is because that balance was there. And also it's interesting that you talk about the, not liking the soldiers, John, because you so solved the problem with the soldiers in, in our production, because part of what is wrong with Fosca is the context in which she lives, yes. which yes. is that yes. she is a highly intelligent, poetic, artistic, passionate, thin <laughs> woman in a time when women weren't supposed to be like that. And the pressure of, and, and her, her big failure was to have been abandoned by this man. So she, was an, she became an outcast, essentially. And there she was living in this world of men and the, the pressure of that on her. And, and one of the things that John did so brilliantly is left the soldiers on stage all the time. So there's always a sense of Giorgio and Fosca being watched by this, this kind of very oppressive community that they were in. Mm -hmm. I and I think that, that changes the dynamic between the audience and Fosca. flashback scene too, Judy, the, the men played the women in the flashback scene as well, yeah. and it was dominated mm -hmm. by that masculinity. Yeah. Judy, you, you bring up such a great point in terms of where Giorgio is and what Sondheim said in terms of his inspiration to write this after he saw the film in New York at a, a, a cinema that... Um, he was saying it was the moment she came down the stairs, you understood where the story was going to go, that she was going to fall in love with him, what he was not expecting, and what was the surprise that kept him sustained for the remainder of the film was that he was going to fall in love with her, but how would that happen? Oh, how would already in love with him when she, mm -hmm. when she comes into yes. she She's been looking at him out the window. She's yeah. been watching and learning, yes. And what she knows when she walks in is that he is like her. He just doesn't know it yet. And yes. when he discovers that they are alike, then he will love her. And she's, I think, very convinced of that. And all she has to do is love him. That's all she has to do. There is a bit in the in the novel. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Where they and they don't mention it in the play, but I believe it's in the novel where they say that he also has a delicate constitution. Yes. Yes. Which which is a connection that they obviously they didn't need to want to explore that much in the 
in the music. Isn't it also, isn't this one of the few shows that was actually Steve's idea? Yes. Yes, there's only two. And and it's interesting that you have mentioned one of them, which is Sweeney Todd, and the other was uh, Roadshow. But Roadshow was conceived back in the 1950s and had a, you know, a 30 year gestation period. So it's interesting in a different way that that the two shows that have these monsters as characters that he makes us. <laughs> well, I mean, she's not the she's not the nicest person sometimes, <laughs> but you know, she does some things that are problematic. Um, There's also a connection there with Roadshow in that, I, you know, I know that show as you probably know very intimately, in that I was given the task of making something of it at the end of the day, and. Uh, you know, this, the relationship in that show, we won't talk about it for too long, but between Addison and Hollis, between the uncomfortable, somewhat overweight brother and this young, beautiful boy is not dissimilar to the, you know, and it also even has a train scene between the two of them yes. in the same way that passion has a train scene. Yes. And that thing about uh, that relationship being suspended in locomotion is, is, uh, is a common denominator between mm-hmm. both pieces. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I always thought with Pat, I never really talked to Steve Sontheim about this, but it, why would I? But it feels very personal mm-hmm. uh, to him, you know? Well, that, that, was, that was a question I had for all three of you who have had a great uh, exposure to performing in a variety of Sondheim's work. Do you sense that with this piece particularly, like with Sweeney, that a show that he was compelled, he was the one who said, I've got to write this. He saw this film, it floored him, and he decided to put pen to paper. We also know that personally in his life, there were relationship changes, there were things happening for him late in life while he was writing this. Do you sense as uh, performers of his work or John, interpreters of his work, that this one has something that is you that was more personal. Do you sense that when you're in the writing and you're working on it? I think there's definitely a rawness to the words and the love and the way that we speak of love and passion that is a little bit different from any of the other Sondheim I've had the pleasure of working on. God, you are so beautiful. I love to see you in the light, clear and beautiful. Memorize every inch, every part of you to take with me. Your feet so soft as if they'd never touched the ground. Your skin so white, so pure, so delicate. Your smell so sweet, your breath so warm. I will summon you in my mind. I'm painting you indelibly on my mind. Let me go. We must fill every moment. All this happiness ended by a word in the dark. For oh, my so darling, much happiness wasn't meant to last. I am with you. I, am I never yours. knew what love was. I always so thought I didn't deserve it. I want you every minute of my love. did an early reading of, um, it was called Bounce back then with Hal Prince and they were still trying to, it was a two week workshop or something like that. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't see the similarities until I started working on Passion. I didn't remember that from having seen Passion, the train station scene and all of that, but wonderful catch on your part. Um, but I, I really think that there's a way that they describe the longing that's different in Passion and he writes beautiful songs of love. I mean, some of those songs in company, but there's a different rawness in this that I, I feel. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what makes him the Shakespeare of today is that, 
you know, I've worked very closely in a room with him a number of times, particularly on Roadshow, when they were lost. And it was the most extraordinary experience or to go to his home and hear him sit at the piano and play a song for the very first time that the world has never heard before. It's just the extraordinary gift. But every single show I thought, oh, this is about him. Oh, this is, about, you know, I remember being with him and George Firth one evening in his house and they started having a go at each other. And I thought, oh, this isn't about, company was nothing to do with Elaine Stritch. It's about you two. <laughs> you know, I think there's, that's what makes him great. That's the greatness. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the complex human who can put so much of self into the work. I mean, that's the essence of the artist, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. um, so and that's why I get a little, you know, people said about Roadshow, oh, well, it's not as good as, or it didn't work in quite the way that, who cares? It's 10, 20,000 times better than most of the stuff you have to listen to. So there, there's the, let's not judge one against the other. Let's make them, it's, it's a body of work that all came from a body. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Judy? Wait, what do I think? You mean about how personal it is? I, I feel yeah. that there is something very personal for Steve in that piece. Well, you, didn't you say, John, that he was writing it when he was falling in love for the first time, really, as a... Yes, which is what Michael was alluding to, yes. I mean, there was, things were happening in his life. Yeah. He was rec recognizing love. And, you know, I think the point that Kathy made earlier on about Giorgio loving, uh, Giorgio loving Fosca. I think Giorgio finds, Giorgio learns to love love as yes. opposed to love yes. Fosca. I mean, that's really what yes. the piece is about, isn't it? It's about the learning of what does love mean? Exactly. But yeah, on that level, it, I suppose it, ha it has to be human. It should be personal. But one could say that Sweeney Todd was personal, but I hope Steve sometimes never baked a pie <laughs> human beings in it you know I mean it's, it's very complicated <laughs> I, think, I think as well when I, I I just like to say when you having had the great great life privilege of working so closely with these people they don't set about knowing what they're writing they don't you know I mean I remember on Sweeney Todd Michael when I was talking about the city on fire sequence in the second half and I said Steve I really feel I need to apologize I just don't think I've ever made that sequence work and he said well what are you worried about we didn't either <laughs> <laughs> so, you know it's like it's never done the thing about it that jumps out at me with this particular piece and again the 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 we know the connection that was made with his personal life at the time and 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 uh being a late bloomer of a kind. But when you do look back at his other work that involve romances, whether it's Little Night Music, whether it's uh, Follies, even Forum, it's comic love, company. It's comic love. It's never physical, carnal, romantic love. It is cynical, comical love. And this, I think, was the was such a shock. And of course, his bold decision to open the show as he did with a scene that for all the audience knows because they don't know anything else about what's to come or what are we gonna find out about Clara in just a few scenes that we're seeing a purely passionate, carnal lovemaking scene, which had not really been seen in a production by Stephen Sondheim up until that point. Um, and then we see where then, of course, we're going to have the unique storyline that we've, we've got going here. But I, I don't know. I feel like there's lots of love stories in his, I mean, Sunday in the Park. I mean, they're, they're all different kinds of love story and all different kinds of love. And I think what's, you know, passion, the subject is love. You know, the subject mm -hmm. is an exploration of love and passion and beauty and what all those things really mean and what is the relationship between them. Um, but I see, I don't know, Desiree and, um, I, I don't know, I feel like there's, there is a lot of comic love, but I think there's also a lot of 
exploration of all different kinds of relationships. Yeah, and I think there's all the pain that comes with love and almost all the work. I mean, certainly in company, I, I get, I hear what you're saying. And yes, it's about cynical New Yorkers and all of that stuff, but it's also about loneliness and it's mm -hmm. about being on the outside looking in just in the same way that Fosca is on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. You can't really sing being alive unless you've sussed out something about that. That's what I was thinking. Somewhere between marry me a little and being yeah. alive, there is that same thing. All this complexity, you know, for all you hate the fact that the, mm -hmm. the, the top never goes back on the sauce bottle, you know, it's still, <laughs> say, it's still about love in some way, I think. I think that the, there aren't many back... laughs in Fosca. Let's put it that way. There are, in, in in passion, there aren't many laughs. I mean, it's it's yeah. a much more serious <laughs> healing of the subject for sure. I think that's sort of what I was saying when I said it's more raw. Absolutely. There's not. It's relentlessly raw. We rarely have a time to be lighthearted about it. That's right. And as much as Giorgio and Clara think they have it figured out, we realize they absolutely do not. Right. And it's it's interesting because. Bosca keeps grounding us to be like, you just aren't there yet, but I am, and I'm going to take you with me. <laughs> Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. Loving you is not and not much reason to rejoice but it gives me purpose gives me voice to say to the world this is why i Right in thinking that it's the first of his musicals to be done in one act. I don't think uh, any of the earlier ones were done. Uh, I think the Frogs originally was a one act, and yeah. then Nathan Lane wrote the second, uh, yes. you know, bowing to Bert Shevlov. And then I believe, uh, if if I re am remembering correctly, he wanted Into the Woods to be one act, and they said you can't possibly. That mm -hmm. would never work, never. And Coachman <laughs> is of course one act, but it wasn't originally. Um, there's also no discrete songs in no. pa Passion. There's no moment for the audience to applaud. Yeah, they meander right in. I had somebody come to see the show and they said to me, when the curtain came down, was the first time they felt like they'd taken a breath since they'd sat, since the head curtain had come up. Yes. I think that tension is intentional yeah. so that yeah. we feel that same intensity that Fosca lives and breathes. <laughs> and part of it, I think, you know, the, the, the as, he, as he writes about it in Look, I Made a Hat was the preview process, which was so difficult because of the audience's verbal reaction to it. Either yelling things out at the stage, you know, Fosca, you know, get off the stage or, you know, right. I mean, literally yelling things at the actors or laughing out loud in a way that- when I saw it, when I, when I went, uh, that happened a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Somebody hollered or laughed? I'm so intrigued. Both. Both. Yeah. I remember a huge groan when she showed up at the train. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember people laughing, but maybe it was just because I was right out of college and wide-eyed. I don't remember. And I think that a lot of that stopped once the reviews came out. Mm -hmm. You know, 
the, the audience had been told it was good, so then they decided it was good. They were allowed to enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, we're allowed to enjoy it now. Okay. <laughs> do Do you recall um, that relationship with the audience in terms of their buying in and being with you? Did it was it an was it one of these things where they walked in because as what you're saying, John? They once the reviews had come out and the and they sort of crowning of the show being a, a masterwork Are, were they walking in for you thinking it was a masterwork or did it do you remember the audience still needing to acclimate themselves I, to... I personally don't remember that at classic stage Judy you might I, I um it was the first musical that had ever been done down there so I think there was a sense of anticipation maybe when the audience came in I'm also not very good about I'm I shouldn't admit this, but I'm old enough to admit anything. I don't really, I would never care if I never saw an audience watch my work ever. So I don't really listen. I mean, I love rehearsing and I love actors and I love the process. The, the rest of it is like, okay, whatever. Uh, so I don't really know. Do you remember Judy? I mean, I remember there being a very strong reaction, but I don't remember there being no, negativity at, or anything. At CSC, I don't remember any resistance from the audience. Though I do remember in some talkbacks, people saying, I, has, did you rewrite this show in any way? Because this isn't the show I remembered seeing. Yes. And That's interesting. And they wanted to know, and we were like, nope, everything is exactly the same on the page. Mm -hmm. And then they really wanted to know why did it feel different? We didn't, I mean, Kathy, to go back to your point about the nakedness, we didn't do the nakedness. Yeah. Uh, I remember the first day of rehearsal, Melissa Erica said to me, well, where's the bed? I said, there's not going to be a bed. She nearly <laughs> ran out of the room. <laughs> you know, I was, it, it, we stripped everything away. And, and I just felt that nakedness right there in front, uh, you know, two feet away from somebody. This is going to take them out of the story as opposed to put them into the story. So found a different way of it being just as shocking, of course. But it is interesting how people get, that's what's so, I, I even remember James Lapine saying, well, where's the nakedness? Um, you know, like when people get stuck in what an original was, right. and then you only see the original in their heads until something comes along that isn't that original. It's so fascinating. Rebecca really. wasn't naked in the, at the Kennedy Center either. Was she not? No, she told Eric Schaefer, she said, I will not do that. I won't yeah. do it. And he said, that's fine. Yeah. Put her in something slinky. Sure, sure. <laughs> Sure. One of the things that that uh, remind me that are similar in in your two productions, both at Classic Stage and then at Chicago Shakespeare, which struck me when I rewatched the video of the Broadway production that was played on on American Playhouse, was how much more I liked the video version of the Broadway show. I'm wondering why am I enjoying this more, and it was because of the intimacy. It was because of the closeness, which I was the same result at both of your productions, which you don't need to put somebody naked on stage if this show is that close to them. The whole show is, as Kathy is saying, so naked. Yes, it is. Th that, um, so Judy, in the sense that when you did it at the Kennedy Center, which is such a larger room, Mm -hmm. Did you did you find yourself recalibrating your approach because of the scope of size of the room versus what you did when the audience is sitting as close as they are? I think the Kennedy Center was first. So right. Was, yeah. So I'm saying, do you do you oh, find I, that there's a great deal of difference for you? Oh, oh, it's, it was really different. Yeah. It, it at CSC, it felt so exposed, and and it actually it helped in a lot of ways because it really kind of opened up a lot of things, I think, because of how exposed we all were. And there's something about, and also, I don't know how you did it, um, Kathy, but it, we, we were in three quarters. So, and with the soldiers there, it I felt like everybody was in it with us. Are you running away from me? Since I've recovered, you've made every effort to get away from me, to be free of my company. There are times when I wish to be alone. I know that I offend you. I do not have this conversation. What's 
sort of conversation do you desire, Captain? Something innocuous? Do you wish to discuss your troops? Or should we talk about the weather? It feels like rain. What do you think? I think you can be very difficult. I didn't come here to be difficult. I came here simply to share your comfort. You have no business being out here. Do you want me dead? I'm Fosca! Don't be so unfair! It was interesting too that, I mean, I don't know what this has got to do with anything, but I'd like to share it and J Judy might talk about it, but I, uh, I wasn't particularly, I was, hadn't been in New York all that long. So I wasn't terribly used to the idea that stars don't audition, right? Um, and because in Britain, you audition anyway. That's it. You know, if you want the gig, you show up. And I said, and the, somebody had said to me that Judy Kuhn wanted to be seen. And I said, well, she's not going to audition. <laughs> and therefore, I won't be able to have her in the room because I need to know that I can work with this person, right? Take it from there, Judy. <laughs> I can oh, remember the afternoon. I can remember the room, oddly yes. enough. Oh my God. Well, I mean, you know, I always think that that's so silly. You know, I almost missed out on a really great experience of a show because my agent told the theater that I, I wouldn't audition. I wouldn't, I, I, you know, it was an offer only. I didn't even know that it was being discussed. Anyway, that's a whole other thing, but I, was desperate to do it. And I would really wanted to work with John who, whose work I admired so much. And I feel like, just like John, I, I wanna know, can I work with this director? Are we gonna be, because I also having done the piece, I knew how complex it was. And if you don't ha aren't on the same page with your director, <laughs> you're not gonna have a good time. No. And um, I loved, that audition <laughs> it just you know john was like come up sit come let's just chat yeah. <laughs> but it's also interesting that that kathy thinking about the role you played i keep i'm, I'm not a star ps i always audition <laughs> I'm, I'm confused by that notion <laughs> i remember in london helen hobson i can't remember who played it but even, and I, I enjoyed that afternoon, but I even remember thinking Clara was a little annoying <laughs> in and out. And oh. I didn't feel that when we worked on it. I, I felt very differently about that when we worked on it. You know, I think it's difficult to write a musical where, where a great deal of the communication is by letter. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's a very complicated right. idea and letters, Letters don't make you care about people. I mean, they, they do nowadays because we don't get them often enough. But do you know what I'm saying? It's a difficult thing. And I didn't feel that when we worked on the piece. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt she was remote in some irritating way when I saw it in London. And I didn't feel that when we did the piece. One of the I moments- I loved her. I, I, I didn't find her remote either. So I suppose that depends on the freedom uh, that the director gives you. Uh, Gary gave us a lot of freedom in that way and we discussed it, we discussed where everybody's heart center was and I think that if, if, if you make her fluffy and busy, she could be, yeah. but we didn't go that way either and um, I, I love her. Yeah. I love that she, her love is mostly for her kid and yeah. they don't get that yet, but they will later maybe. It's just a, yeah. I don't know. I don't think that she's as daft as she could when, be. No, and when you think that the person who originated the role, our dear late Marin Maisie, is, was certainly not fluffy. I mean, she was many no. things, was not fluffy. She was fantastic. And, from a woman's point of view, women were expected to say certain things. And I mean, as the character, as I build her through the piece, I mean, there, through, through the letters I'm receiving from him, I'm constantly hearing about this other woman. Now. I would like to hope that being a woman of 1994, I would be saying, okay, who is this person? What's going on here? But no, Clara keeps it all in, has to. I mean, she can't, well, for one thing, she's married. So, I mean, it really isn't her place to say, you know, is there someone else in your life? And, and but, but she sees it in him and she sees that someone else is taking over him. And, and that ends up becoming what ruins their relationship. Uh, yeah. Like there's a there's a strength in that 
character that I didn't see when I saw it in London and I did see it when we worked on it. I remember vividly, Kathy, at your production. And the reason I remember it was because at the moment it happened at your production, I remembered it happening when I saw it on Broadway, which was that when the revelation came that she was married, the audience gasped. gasped. And you yes. felt them turn their opinion, like yes. right in that moment, which is why I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the, the opening scene of this show, which seems to be this pure scene of lovemaking um, struck me so because you can see how it's, it's that magic of going, I only know what I'm being exposed to at this moment. And what I think I'm seeing is this. And then I, I, once I know that she's a married woman cheating on her husband, yes. it's a very different story. I and think that, that it the, has to be approached romantically at first. And I think that that is a beautiful thing that we have found in different interpretations. I know that we had the beautiful mosquito netting. So it was all through like a gauzy, filmy, film noir with very dim lighting. So, so we were naked. We weren't, since we were four feet away from our front row, it was very gauzy and very, very mood lighting, but it just felt like a beautiful slice of very authentic, honest intimacy. And I loved that part. And I feel like we did our job well if they gasped because we want them to go, that's a married person. Mm -hmm. that, that felt right to me if, if they were so moved to go, oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that felt like a small storytelling victory. Mm -hmm. Isn't it also an extraordinary, wonderful, complex conceit to get a character to ask another character to write down a letter that that character sings to that person as if the letter was being written to her. I mean, what sort of jigsaw puzzle of a mind figured that? Uh, it's beyond me, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, it's a glorious, uh, and it was, I think it's an interesting, a beautiful, beautiful tool for storytelling mm. in those hands. Mm -hmm. And his hands are extraordinary, so. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it's so perfect for the time. There are things about the piece that are also connected to the, 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 the period and the, the ways that people, what people expected of each other. To some degree, Judy, you, I believe you, you mentioned earlier in terms of the way that people looked or, or um, what was acceptable in terms of what beauty was and what technically ugliness is. Um, and how it relates to this play at the, the moment. I remember Sondheim was, had talked about, there was a moment in, um, it's the scene where she asked Giorgio to get into the bed with her. And I believe that she had had a moment where she said, I'm gonna give you a lock of my hair, which the audience found hilarious or repulsive. And they just couldn't figure out a way to make it work because audiences in 1994 just did not understand that back in the day, that was a very commonplace thing and a, an action of oh, affection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also you're talking about, uh, you were talking there about a woman, but an Italian woman. I mean, they're not Americans. <laughs> they have a different kind of, there's a different kind of passionate in, emotional center mm -hmm. um, that uh, of course some Americans have because they are Italian, but it's a very, very European piece is my point. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the whole thing, but also some of the, uh, I, I, in order to, to remind myself, because I'm terribly bad at, you know, like I do a show and then I think, oh, did that happen? I, I deliberately went online and listened to Judy sing one of the songs. And, you know, like this, this is why I live, you are why I live. I mean, the haiku of that, the, the circular notion of that um, and the perfection of that, it, it's extraordinary coming out of what we are supposed to believe is ugliness. I mean, extraordinary. And I'd like to take that moment to just say, if anyone is listening to this discussion, please go listen to Judy sing because you will mm. not be disappointed. <laughs> Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. 
<laughs> we don't care what Patty Lapone so says. Sorry. We're glad that there are bootlegs of you out there. On <laughs> Listen <laughs> to Judy. <laughs> the person that they originally asked to do it. Sunset. Yes, and then she turned it down to do Sunset Boulevard in yeah. London. Yeah. Which... <laughs> well, she got a swimming pool out of it. So that's that's true, that's true. I was, say, I was thinking when you said about loving you and the simplicity and the, the perf perfection of that, one of the things I discovered, and you also called him the Shakespeare of our time, is one of the things I learned when I was first working on that score is that Sondheim, what he does in terms of telling, with his music, telling you what the state of mind, what the journey of that character is. And that, you know, I read, which is the first thing she sings, which every measure is in a different meter. She never stops. So she, you, there's barely room for a breath. She, at her, it you know, speaks to her sort of disordered mind, her anxiety of being with him, all these different things. And then you get to loving you, which is in 4-4, four, four, yep. very melodic, very simple, yep. because that's the journey she's that's on. Right. And I just, oh, he just, he's telling you, just like that's Shakespeare right. does with that's right. verse. With verse and going from a kind of prose yeah. form to a verse form. Yeah. But I think also important to say in this conversation, let's never forget Jonathan Tunick, right? Yes. Let's never forget that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, having, having done, when I asked him if he would orchestrate our show, Judy, and I was very nervous of asking him, I mean, he's Jonathan Tunick for God's sake. And we sat down in some coffee bar and I said, no, listen, Jonathan, I don't very much money. So don't get any ideas about repeating what you did before. And then, and he sat down and he just asked me what the piece meant to me. And what did I see of myself in the piece? We talked about that. And he said, okay, well, we'll do it with this number and they'll only play one instrument each. There'll be no doubling up. We'll strip it right down. Well, it was exquisite. I mean, just exquisite, and lost nothing by being, you know, but it, it's, if I say stripping down, that suggests minimalizing it. It was nothing to do with that. It was giving it new voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, you can, and they're all fantastic. And I know that Sondheim honors his, his writer, his book writers and his orchestrators with equal measure, but he, his orchestrators have been a, an enormous contributor to that very, I mean, the chords are not theirs, but the the voicings of that has just been extraordinary. And it's all about proportion too. It would have been inappropriate to do it with a live, with a large orchestra in the way that you were doing it. Somebody like Tunic is going to come and understand the proportion in which it needs to properly be presented. And that's why it thrills because it does, it seems like it's in accord. That's correct. Vision. Equally, you know, I'm sorry, I won't take any more time about this, but I asked him then to come over to Chichester in England to do Oklahoma for me. And I thought, he'll never do Oklahoma. And he did, of course, come and do Oklahoma. Well, it was like somebody had written a new score. Mm -hmm. It was exactly the same music, but it was like, oh, it doesn't sound like that anymore. It sounds like now. And yet the instruments were all classical instruments, quote unquote. There was no electronic in the, in the, in the sound. And I just think that's such a, an extraordinary skill that, that often gets missed over. You know, orchestrators don't get honored in the way that I feel they should be as part of the process. Very true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Judy and Kathy, is there any particular kind of preparation that you need to do as actors to perform this show? And I'm talking about your warm up or before you go and do a show that is this, as Kathy says, this raw, this naked in front of an audience. Is there anything different for you? I prefer to you, dude. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I mean, for this role, I had to take time before I went on stage just to physically get into her body mm -hmm. because I mean, Everybody talks about her for 20 minutes before she gets on stage. So you better be 
at least something of that person. <laughs> you also hear her screaming off stage and, you know, I, the, you know, the first things out of her mouth is I've been so ill. So, you know, I, I, that, to, that to me was the, the backstage preparation to go on stage is just mm -hmm. to get into her body and her mindset. It was made a little more difficult at Classic Stage Company because we are, we, it is the smallest backstage. In, in, I don't think I've ever worked in such a small backstage. <laughs> we were all crammed in. So we were all like, you know, everyone waiting to go on stage. We were like this and all those soldiers were just... Picking <laughs> up a lot of space. It just made me laugh so hard. And I remember one night you were backstage before the show, John, they were just being so raucous and making me laugh so hard. And then they all, you know, the, the rest of the company goes on stage and I'm left back by myself. And you looked at me and said, I bet you're glad they're gone. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I didn't get ready. <laughs> Kathy, how about you? Was this well, song? I can honestly tell you that this, I don't know if it's the way that Sondheim voiced it or not. This was one of the most glorious, delicious scores I have ever sung. I could have never missed a show I, and I could have done it for four years and never missed a show. It was just, um, maybe because I, Weber knows me well enough to know I'm a, most of my characters I lead with my heart anyway. It, it felt delicious every single night and I just can't say enough. There was something about the way melodically he wrote it in the same way that Fosca is written very complicated as Judy just said with I read and the intervals are complicated and the rhythms are complicated and Clara was just the opposite and it all just felt like a warm caress all of her music so vocally no I didn't do anything special I looked forward to it every single day um, uh, emotionally it also felt really, really good. And I, I was fortunate enough to love my cast. I loved Adam Brazier. I loved Anna Gasteyer, um, who was just a delight, who's one of the funniest people in America playing this complicated role. So I, it, I actually enjoyed watching her process because she wasn't what you might expect. And it was, it was an education. But for this particular role, no, I didn't have anything particularly fancy or special, it was my privilege. But there you are and there you Before we wrap up, um, I like to kind of just propose a question, which uh, I'd love to just get each of your response to. If you encountered somebody who was who let you know they were going to see a production, a Class A production of Passion for the first time tonight, they they've never seen it before. They don't know what to expect. What am I going? What is this show? I don't. What do you tell them? You're going to see Passion. Oh, you can expect this experience what should how should they be ready for this i would say ex expect something challenging both for the mind and the soul i would say expect some of the most glorious music you've ever heard um and i would say don't judge just 
go with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think uh, similarly, I would say, breathe before you go in. <laughs> Sit on your hands. Do not expect to applaud. Just take in the storytelling. And I, <laughs> I concur with Judy. Just go with it. <laughs> I, I'm not very good at telling anybody what to think of you when they go to the theater. I'm always saying to our marketing department, our marketeers, don't, uh, don't tell the audience what to think. Mm -hmm. And I, I sometimes feel sad that the, that the audience waits for the critic to tell them what to think. Mm -hmm. It makes me sad. Um, but I would say one thing, one word really, and that is listen. Mm -hmm. That's all, just listen. You'll, yeah. you'll hear things that, like Shakespeare, You'll hear things that tell you everything you need to know about the human condition. That's what I would say. Best answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> That's a great answer. That's why he's fancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. What a delight to talk with the three of you about this show and just to get to revisit it and hear your take on it. I've learned so much from you. And don't, I don't, believe, don't believe a word that Raul Esparza tells you about <laughs> I won't. I'll tell him you said so. Thank you, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.